what we're finding is that happiness and optimism wasn't something you inherit. It's something you cultivate. That's Sean Acor. And this is the Depression Detox Show. Welcome back to the Depression Detox Show, where we share ideas and stories to help you live a happier life. I am your host, Malik Josephs. Happy Friday. I appreciate you tuning in with me today. And we have positive psychology and happiness researcher Sean Acor making his debut on the show to share two things to counteract depression and create long-lasting happiness. Here's Sean Acor. Enjoy. This has been really powerful for me. I spoke at the CDC uh, two years ago, and they said this whole decade that I've been speaking about the happiness advantage out at organizations, they said uh, during that same period of time, they haven't changed the number of people screened nor the depression screening, and yet depression rates in the United States have doubled for every single age group during that same period of time. Hospitalization for suicide for every single age group have doubled, including for eight-year-olds. I have a one-year-old and a five-year-old, and I don't want them growing up in that system or that world. And what we're finding is it's not that being human is hard. It's that being human is increasingly hard over the past decade. Something's changed. We can debate about what it is another time. What I'm interested in are what things we can do to counteract it at the individual and the organizational level. There's so much research about what we could do. I'm only going to focus on two because I'm hoping you'll pick up just one to do individually. If it works, then spread it out to a team. If it works for the team and you get a feedback loop, then try it out for an organization. But they're very simple. um, And then I'll talk about how to do them in organizational form and I'll be finished. But uh, they're both based upon patterns. They're both work routine changes. Initially, they're just a personal habit change that take less than two minutes a day. I had met up with a former U.S. Surgeon General, um, and we were talking about these happiness hygiene habits, that if we could insert a two-minute change in somebody's day akin to brushing your teeth, that we can actually half the rates of depression and dramatically improve people's levels of happiness and meaning at work. We know them, we just have to get people to try them. Um, So if you're not doing one of these two, then please pick up one of these. The first one um, was based upon a pattern, which is why I messed up at American Express. At American Express in the middle of the banking crisis, I had them for uh, for 21 days in a row. Think of three things that they're grateful for. 21 days later, no impact upon them when we studied them, which is why we researched this, because I assumed it was gonna work and I was wrong. I went back into the data to see what was going on there, and by day three, everyone repeats. I'm grateful for my work, my family, and my health. And then with a very nuanced lens, they would scan the world for all the new fires they need to put out. Two researchers, Emmons and McCullough, found that it doesn't matter what you're grateful for at all. What matters is you're scanning. And what you have people do for 21 days in a row is you have them scan the past 24 hours for three new things that they're grateful for. And suddenly, people who are testing as pessimists who always test as pessimists, that's how we know our metrics work, 21 days later, we're testing as low-level optimists. That shouldn't be happening. That's one of the genetic ones. You're born a pessimist, you die a pessimist, that's the end of the story. That wasn't the story at all. That's the story we've been told throughout our entire lifetimes, and it's scientifically inaccurate. Genes set the initial baseline, but a 45-second disruptor could change somebody's patterns. 84-year-old men who have been practicing this their entire lives, same pattern after a 21-day period of time. 
four-year-old children around a dinner table who are already predisposed towards pessimism, so we assume they have genes for it. Turns out that you actually have them do this for six weeks in a row. Six months later, before and after school, they're testing a low-level optimist. At Columbia, they found if you do this for more than uh, 21 days in a row, you do it for six months, you move to low to moderate level of optimism. What we're finding is that happiness and optimism wasn't something you inherit alone, it's something you could cultivate which is why we got excited. What happens when you do this at the organizational level? But first of all, let me just say that one more time. You have people look for three new things that they're grateful for that have occurred over the past 24 hours, and not what they're grateful for, but why. So if I say I'm grateful for my son, it doesn't matter. If I say I'm grateful for my son, he gave me a hug yesterday at the zoo, which means I'm loved regardless today, that works. Do this for 21 days in a row. I work with homeless populations. It turns out you do this with some of them that can't see anything they're grateful for. 21 days later, they have 63 unique things that they're grateful for, which is beautiful, not the point of it. The point of it is their brain has actually been practicing um, because you do this, you scan for the positive, then you go right back to your day, but your brain doesn't. Your brain trains itself to devote a few resources to basically creating a background app that's passively scanning the input that's coming in for something that's good for you to talk about tomorrow which means your brain is constantly looking for those pinpricks of positivity over the course of your day, which changes what you see. It changes that world around you. So we get, go to a lot of organizations, and we're like, you know, I'm the only person at this organization trying to create this change. Or, you know, that's not part of our culture at all. We can't sit around holding hands, you know, singing kumbaya. We're, we're doing very serious work, and that's the serious culture there. So we said, and we're not like Zappos. So I said, um, okay, fine. So we went to a level one trauma hospital called Orlando Health, and we had, during their staff meetings, we got the senior leaders to get the leaders of the staff meetings to go around the room before they did their resource allocation based upon who lives and dies based upon the money that they have, literally life or death decisions, and got these jaded uh, uh, individuals who've been doing this for 10 to 20 years to say one th- thing that they were grateful for around in a circle. Literally something we do in a kindergarten classroom, right? The pushback was amazingly strong, (laughs) right? The social capital we had to burn to get them to do this was stunningly high. But we got them to do this, and they did it for three weeks, and they were like, why are we still doing it? That happiness guy's gone. And the senior leaders were like, no, this is part of our culture, but we have to do this fast because we have a lot of important things we need to do. So when you come into the meeting, I want you to already have something you're grateful for. So we can go really quick and do this in one minute, popcorn style, and get back. They did this for two years. Two years almost to the day we started this intervention with them, the Pulse nightclub shooting occurred three blocks down from them. The second largest shooting in U.S. history. And all the victims from this tragedy came to the teams we had been working with for two years, who for two years had been going around before their staff meetings on life or death decisions saying one thing they're grateful for. A few hours after the tragedy occurred, the next morning when they had their staff meetings, they started with their gratitudes again. And they said it was universal. They realized that they were so grateful that for two years, they hadn't just been doing work together. They hadn't just been doing resource allocation or whatever the person's function is inside that meeting. They weren't just doing that. They were also hearing these points of connection that were positive of the people in their ecosystem of potential. And it turns out, so what I would say in that deepening social knowledge is a precursor to social connection. And social connection is the greatest predictor of long-term happiness we have. Social connection is the greatest predictor of long-term performance. Google found that in Project Aristotle. And social connection is the greatest predictor of your resilience. So a gratitude exercise was the glue that created the resilience in the face of the challenges they were were experiencing. They now go out and train other hospitals about how to, to prepare for traumas by practicing things that they're grateful for. 
That's how we take these ideas from small potential and take it to big potential. We took people off the phones at a large insurance company in the Midwest, and we got them to take time away from the calls, which is the only place they make money, and for 10 minutes to emotionally connect in with one another in these huddles. They knew they were going to lose money because they're taking them off of where they make money. And what they would do is they emotionally check in with one another. They would hear about one success that they're having and one thing that they were struggling with. And they would go back to the phones and they changed the leader each day. Turns out over the next 18 month period of time, the revenues increased by 50%. Highest engagement score changes inside the entire organization. When you're hired at this organization now, there's sales academy. They don't teach you sales lead to happiness. Happiness leads to great levels of sales. This started with the lowest performing team inside the organization and now their entire sales academy has changed. And the senior leaders are involved with it as well, which is amazing. So what we're looking for is how do we do this? One last thing, um, and, and then I'll go to the second one, is uh, we started doing this at home as well. Um, I learned this after a talk. I'm, I'm working with a lot of schools right now. I'm working with all the schools in Flint, Michigan, um, which is fascinating because, you know, when we st- we're ta- I'm talking about happiness in a place where there's a water crisis and cyclical poverty and the government's not helping out enough, right? And in the midst of that, some of the people in the community initially were like, why are we talking about happiness? Let's fix the water crisis, then we'll start talking about happiness, which makes total sense to me, except that all this research says that the more you get people to feel positive and socially connected, the more the resilience and their educational outcomes rise dramatically. So if we have big problems we need to deal with, we need to bring the best brain possible to bear upon it. So we did this with a poor school in Iowa, bottom 10% school in Iowa. We came in, we created the same happiness of interventions we were doing at mid-size and large companies and did it for the school. So the lunch staff, we taught them the 10-5 rule from the Ritz-Carlton. We had bus drivers writing two-minute positive handwritten notes to each of the students on the bus. We had the teachers and the uh, students, uh, the superintendents and the staff practicing these gratitude exercises every single day and starting their staff meetings with that. For the next five-year period of time, to summarize it, their ACT scores rose by three and a half points. They now have a 91% graduation rate, 95% attendance rate. And for the first time in Iowa history, kids from the richer counties, it's open enrollment there, kids from the richer counties are coming to the poorest county in Iowa to get a better education, which means they get more state funding. What's amazing about this is that where we thought it wasn't possible, it turns out it's possible almost anywhere, at almost any time which is why we're doing this work in all these different schools. One of the things I learned from them, it was in Iowa. Um, by the way, we did this in Chicago. Took a 73rd academic school to the 95th percentile inside Iowa, now top 2%. And we did that while they went from almost no free lunch students to 35% free lunch students. As the society changed, we also changed the curriculum for them and their scores skyrocketed in the midst of it. One of the things I learned is we now have a glass bowl on my, uh, on, in our kitchen and we write down on um, scrap sheets of paper one thing that we're uh, something that we're grateful for, something good that happens. Um, so we're at dinner, we're talking about something, we'll write it down and we'll crumple it up and put it into the bowl. Um, then we go back and look at it when the bowl fills up. And what I've learned is that 80 to 90%, and I study happiness, 80 to 90% of the things I write down in there, I've forgotten about. I'm like, oh yeah, 80 to 90% of the positive things in my life, I've no longer had access to had I not written them down. But my brain has full access to all these fires I need to put out in my life. So if my brain is designed to do that, I have to do something, a behavioral work routine that creates this positive change, which led to the very last habit and, my, and where I'll conclude here today. Um, four, uh, five years ago in, uh, in February, my, uh, my uh, son was born, um, or uh, was, was supposed to be born. He was born then. Um, but uh, uh, my wife said, you've been traveling too much. You can't go anywhere in February unless like Oprah calls. Three days later, Oprah called. <laughs> I was like, Michelle, that's amazing. Say somebody else also. And then... 
three days after Leo was born, he was born way late, I found myself in the backyard of Oprah's house talking about happiness research down in Montecito, California. I'd never met a celebrity at this point. I thought I'd be cool. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't at all. They had this redwood forest. She has a redwood forest on her property, as one does. And you walk through it, <laughs> and you see her for the first time, and they have three camera crews filming this beautiful and first organic meeting with Oprah as you've been waiting eight hours during the day to meet her. So you're already super nervous and completely drenched in sweat. And I saw her, and my brain just turned off. I was like, nope, I'm out. And, uh, and she was like, Sean, Sean, Sean. And I didn't know the protocol. Like, Oprah, Oprah, Oprah. So I said nothing, but her hands were up. So I gave her a high five, but I didn't know if I was supposed to be giving her a high five or if it was a hug. And we started rotating in a circle with our arms linked with my panicked eyes. They shut off the cameras for the first time in a thousand interviews. They said, if you ever see that Super Soul Sunday episode where I saw her for the first time, that was the second time we had to, re- we had to redo it. <laughs> But she makes you feel so comfortable, you feel like you could tell her anything after that, which is why the next part happened. Amazing day, I'm with Oprah, my son's been born, I'm talking about happiness research, they break down the cameras, I turn to her and said, I'm so disappointed with this interview, because I really want to talk about going through depression and we ran out of time. But it's so easy to hear all this research I've shared with you here this afternoon, be like, yeah, of course he's happy. He's a happiness researcher, right? His wife's a happiness researcher. His sister's a unicorn. Right? And of course, Oprah's happy. Take all of your life and your problems and then just add in all of her wealth and celebrity friends and a private jet to get to work. Got to be easy in this life to be happy if you're Oprah. She said, Sean, I went through two years of depression at the height of my career while making the most money when Beloved didn't do as well as I want to and I shattered. I told her I went through two years of depression while I was at Harvard teaching the Harvard freshmen how not to go into depression themselves. She turned back on the cameras. We did a whole second hour that was so much deeper than the first. Talking about how do you restart forward progress when it doesn't feel like it's a choice anymore. The turning point for me was the same turning point for her, and it was big potential. The turning point was, up to that point, I was really good at checking off individual metrics in my life. So when I got depressed, I was like, I can do this. I can overcome this. I don't need anyone else. I don't want to burden anyone else. I'll be there for other people, but I got this. And I put up another front uh, to show how positive I was. I went deeper and deeper in depression. Same thing with Oprah. Uh, The turning point for both of us, for me, I had to turn to my eight closest friends and family at the bottom and say, I've been going through depression for two years. I have no idea how to get out of this, but I really need your help. The groundswell of support was amazing. They were calling me, meeting up with me, emailing me, bringing me cupcakes. It's not why I did it, but it was so helpful. And what happened is immediately, as soon as I told them, that mountain in front of me dropped by 10 to 20%. To come back to what I think is the coolest study in psychology right now, because it turns out I wasn't overcoming that hill alone. I now had somebody to climb it with me. So my perception of that mountain dropped by 10 to 20%. And as soon as I did this, I created a real connection with the people I was sitting next to at work or meeting up with or my, sometimes my competitors or my peers there at Harvard. And I opened up to the, to the right ones, not to everyone on social media, but to the right people that are around me. And um, what happened was then they, they opened up about good and bad things that were going on in their life. So what got me out of the bed in the morning wasn't, am, am I happy or not? That wasn't working for me. What got me out of bed was I need to meet up with my friends so we can celebrate because uh, 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 she just got that promotion. Or I don't feel like leaving my room. I haven't left in five days, but I have to meet up with my friend so he doesn't drink tonight. And it turns out instead of trying to light up individually and alone in the darkness, we were trying to find a way of lighting up together as an interconnected community in the midst of a hyper-competitive environment and not just waiting for the world to change around us. Those are some of the deepest relationships I have now. Hold me out of it. It's why I do the work now. But how do we replicate that? We found a way to do it. Uh, We did this initially at Facebook, but then we've done this with companies worldwide at any level and with schools as well. We got people for 21 days in a row. This, by the way, is the the fastest and largest impact you can make in a two-minute period of time doing positive psychology interventions. We got people for two minutes a day 
for 21 days in a row to write a two-minute positive email praising or thanking one person in their life, a different person each day. You think you'll run out of somebody around day six or seven, but then you start realizing all these weak ties you have. You're kid's soccer coach. An old, uh, I wrote to a high school English teacher that I used to have, said, you were the reason I fell in love with reading. You're the reason I wrote a book. Thank you for changing my life. You, it takes you 45 seconds to, to uh, it took me 45 seconds to type it. It took me longer to find that woman's email address online. But if you do this for the next three days in a row, as soon as I finish here, whenever you have a break, um, uh, you're going to pull out your smartphones. You know you will. As soon as you do, you heard all this research, just write a two-minute positive email or text message. For some reason, they work even better. We don't know why. Two-minute text message, praising or thanking one person in your social support network. That's it. If you do it, it'll be not only one of the best parts of the entire conference, and there's so many good things already that are going to go on, but if you do it for three days in a row, turns out your brains literally get addicted to it because you spend all day long thinking about how amazing you were for writing that email in the morning. <laughs> You're like... I'm the kind of person who does this stuff. And you get great emails back because they don't know about the two-minute maximum rule, so they keep writing back about how great they think you are, right? <laughs> You're like, tell me more. But 21 days later is the real value. 21 days from now, if we all came back here, let's do this. 21 days from now, we all came back here and we did this habit for 21 days in a row and magically you all did it. Your social connection score in this room, which is the breadth, depth, and meaning in your social relationship, would be in the top 10% worldwide. The reason that's important is that social connection is the greatest predictor of your long-term happiness. Google found greatest predictor of a team's performance. We found Orlando Health, one of the greatest predictors of resilience. And my final uh, statistic, we just found out social connection is as predictive of how long you will end up living as obesity, high blood pressure, or smoking. We fight so hard against the negative all day long, and we forget to tell people how powerful a two-minute positive text could be. We can literally extend your life as much by getting you to write a two-minute text as getting you to stop smoking. But we get you to write the two-minute positive email, Turns out your social support increases. Likelihood of uh, stopping smoking rises dramatically. Likelihood of creating entire constellations of positive habits rises dramatically. All this research comes down to three conclusions. Scientifically, happiness could be a choice if we apply behavioral habits. You can't just choose happiness and it happens. The more I learn about happiness, the harder I work for it. The second one is that happiness is contagious within that ecosystem. And the third one is that happiness is the greatest competitive advantage in the modern economy. In the midst of burnout, high levels of stress, and depression, if we, need, if we have big problems, we need to bring the best brain possible to bear upon it. But where I think this research is, uh, the biggest conclusion for me is that change is radically possible. We're not just our genes and environment, but if we find a way of creating these positive habits in our life, we can tip this world away from negativity, stress, and uncertainty to a world that starts to light up together and those hills in front of us drop. And all it takes is taking research that's only read on average by seven people total and just bring it to life within our own lives. Big thanks to Sean Acor for stopping by. His website is seanacor.com. His Instagram is Sean Acor, and his very popular and most recent book is entitled Put Happiness to Work, Seven Strategies to Elevate Engagement for Optimal Performance. And if you like this clip, there will be a link to the entire talk along with a link to his website and Instagram. They will all be in the show description. And lastly, don't forget to follow the show share it or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify Podcast. And that's a wrap for me. I hope you have a great rest of your day and even better weekend. I appreciate you and I'll see you back here Monday. So until then, stay strong. Later. Later.